0: much for chatting to me today trisha it's a pleasure so there's about maybe 10 different ways i could describe you i could say this is trisha dearborn she's been in a million different kinds of best australian poetry i could say you're the author of the ringing world from puncher and wapman i could say you're on the editorial board of plumwood mountain but for you what's the first adjective that kind of qualifies that word poet Oh. That's interesting.
1: I think I wouldn't pick one. I Actually, for me, it's sort of about... Well, it's not about. I don't think of myself as any particular kind of poet. And, in fact, I had a quite vigorous email exchange with someone who wanted to classify me as a science poet, for example, because I don't... You know, I do... There is science in some of my work, but I certainly don't think of myself as a science poet. So I don't really have an adjective, I don't think. I just... Uh, think of myself as um as a writer or a poet and who just writes about whatever you know comes to hand whatever feels like it needs to be written so yeah i I wouldn't pick one
0: yeah that's probably the case for most people who have qualifiers attached to them like slam poet or if they're of a certain uh non-white nationality that gets slammed on the front of their name yeah. but I think you're probably right nobody thinks of themselves as oh well, I'm a I'm a female poet or whatever it That's is right.
1: I'm a lesbian poet I'm a science <laughs> poet I'm a oh god you know I, I don't even think you know lyrical poet I just it's just it, yeah it's probably the same for everyone you, you're just a poet doing doing
0: poetry your way mm, mm, exactly and I had a lot of fun researching the poet that you brought to talk about today Maggie Nelson And she did a really fantastic interview, a really short one, just about her work and how she puts poems together. And one of the things she said was, poetry tends to come to me naturally or not at all. And uh, I was wondering if that sounds a bit like you or if you're more of a um, sit-down-every-day, make-it-happen kind of writer. No, no. I'm
1: definitely in the naturally or not at all. I... Yeah, for me it comes or it doesn't. So the amount I'm writing at any given time depends. Oh, look, here's, okay. In terms of beginning poems, definitely it comes or it doesn't. And basically I just, when it does, I just leap and I, you know, take everything down that's there and that's my beginning point. Um, And sometimes it happens at very annoying times. But, you know, when it's there you've kind of got to grab it. But in terms of what I can do is that sometimes I do sit myself down and go, why don't I just open a few things that are in progress and see if anything happens? And, and you know, most often something does. I get drawn in and then I'm sort of uh, writing again. But I don't do that as a, as a matter of course. And I think I would tend to say in my life generally my inclination is just to, um, definitely in terms of creative things, just to go with what's happening at the time. I don't. For me, there's no real benefit. If I just sat down, and poetry is such a pleasure for me, the thought of actually making it a duty or something that I felt like I had to sit down and do kind of horrifies me, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, I wish I was more like you in that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm more of a grind-it-out type person, and it definitely does uh, suck the joy out of it for sure.
1: Oh, yeah, you've got to keep the joy.
0: Yeah, you've got to keep it light. And another thing that Maggie Nelson said in this interview, which I really identified with and I really liked, was um, she said she really likes the process of writing, but she says, what I like less are the soggy, ill-defined, but probably necessary periods between monsoon and drought. So there's kind of like times when, you know, it's not total writer's block, but you're not writing every day, just kind of mm. blah periods. Is that does that describe a little bit of how it, it works for you? Are there those periods in your life, or is it fairly constant?
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's constant. And I definitely have monsoon periods, and then I think I have just sort of thunderstormy periods, or you know, steadier periods. Um, but I don't know if I have the soggy bits. I do have I have times when I'm not writing at all, and I tend not to really worry about that because you know um so there's more to life than writing i don't really mean that what i mean is there are other things that are going on and a lot of them are uh, fertilizing writing or setting the stage for writing or or you can just not be writing and that's okay you can actually be sitting on the sofa watching some crap tv with a glass of wine in your hand and that's
0: also okay so this is um, mind blowing <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do <really>? you mean <laughs> you're allowed, you're allowed not to be writing. You're allowed to do whatever you want. And that might be, you know, maybe I just want a line to retreat today or you don't have to be, you don't have to be a workhorse. You know, I can actually, if if I look at myself, okay, I'll give you a sample day from this is some years ago. I just noticed myself one weekend what I did. I wasn't in a relationship this time. I was living on my own. Basically, I got up on the Saturday, I think I went out and got the paper, I read the paper for hours on my bed, I had cups of tea, I probably had some breakfast, I lay around, maybe I listened to some music. Basically, I spent six, I think I did actually go out and lie under a tree. I spent about six hours doing whatever I wanted and then I sat down and I wrote till midnight. So, you kind of, I feel like you kind of have to go with it and if you sort of have, oh, I also remember something Dorothy Porter said once in an interview, I think it was a written interview. She said, I like a lot of idleness around the work. And I thought, oh, that's nice. You don't have to feel like you have to be always working at stuff and grinding at stuff. Also, for me, there's a real advantage in um, the perspective that you get when you've put something, you've done as much as you can and then you stop and you put it, not necessarily put it away, you just don't look at it for a while. And then when you come back... When there's been this um this gap this space it's like oh my god yeah that's crap that can go you're less invested you have a new perspective that's really
0: valuable too this is all revolutionary stuff for me i think i've bought into (laughs) this um quite capitalist productivity um focused idea of how to how to work and you know you've got to show up if you want the muse to show up and all that kind of stuff
1: here's the thing, poetry can show up anywhere. Um, This is what When I said before, it can be inconvenient. One of the times I remember is that I'd had a really, really hard-working day doing what I cannot remember. I think I'd had probably... It was when I worked in-house and I'd had a solid work day and then I'd come home and had to do a whole shitload of other stuff. And then I was lying in bed. It was midnight. I sort of fell into bed. I turned the lamp off and I was lying there just really registering how absolutely exhausted I was. And then into my... I don't know, is it your mind, into some space. It was like these little words started, little phrases, little words started gathering. This is often how it starts for me. And they start accumulating. They start aggregating. They start kind of conglomerating into sort of longer pieces, lines and bits. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 really? Anyway, and then I realised it was happening that I actually had three separate poems forming in my mind. And I kind of went, okay, and I gave up and I got out of bed and I wrote till two in the morning. Which was, you know, from another perspective, fabulous and really good fun. But so why did I start saying that? It's about, um, I guess, with poetry, uh, I think the muse, if you want to call it that, I don't really think of it like that, but that whatever that beginning thing is can strike at any time in any place. I always make sure I have, you know, paper and usually I have poems with me that I'm have either just finished or I'm working on it. So I have backs of poems I can write on. I make sure I've got a writing instrument because it can kind of happen anywhere at any time. Well, that's that's my experience as opposed to the... So I don't feel like you have to show up. You can be doing any goddamn thing and it can strike.
0: I like this a lot. <laughs> this is good. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you, because I think we do sort of similar work maybe. We're both freelance editors at the moment Um, and I was going to ask you about working on your own from home and doing the kind of gear shifting from working on someone else's words to working more creatively on your own stuff but it sounds like for you it's a really natural spontaneous process at least for the beginning of a poem.
1: Uh, Yes I think it is and I I guess um, I, I tend to contain my freelance work I mean I have I, I track my hours. I have a fairly regular way that I work with it, um, although it's, you know, one thing I love about being freelance is that you can actually vary it, that to suit yourself. I always remember one day when I, I thought it was like a Friday and I thought, I really want to get this poem in for this competition. Okay, right, I'm going to work. I'll do my freelance work tomorrow on Saturday and I just worked on my poem on the Friday and sent it off and um, and actually was a joint winner of that competition. Oh, yes. So. I know. Nice <laughs> end of the story, but I, you know, I've probably done a lot of times when I haven't actually won the competition. But uh, so I like that sort of, uh, I like that flexibility. But in terms of how I work it, I think I do have a reasonably kind of steady way of, um, yeah, just just containing that that freelance stuff. I just make sure I'm, you know getting my work done and doing it well and meeting my deadlines. and But I can move it around however I need to, which is, you know, what I love about it. So so if I do have something of my own I particularly want to be working on, I think occasionally it does happen that I'm editing away on someone else's stuff and I'll have a thought about mine and just bring up my thing and, you know, stick in whatever it is that's come to mind. Because I really do have a very strong belief uh, that you kind of have to deal with the poetry when it kind of, when it's there uh, I, I don't have the kind of – I can't – if I wake up, say I wake up in the night and I think of a line or an idea for a poem, I have to write it down because I know I will have forgotten it in the morning. So I do tend to sort of act um, quickly. So occasionally that probably happens where I'm actually working on someone else's stuff uh, and I'll sort of pop in and do a bit of mine and then, and then come back. But it's usually fairly fairly separate. But, yeah, the movement is, it is pretty spontaneous.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really light, um, gentle approach to it, which is really nice. It's lovely to hear. And you mentioned a little bit earlier um, Dorothy Porter, who definitely came to mind when I was reading the poem that you sent through of yours, but I was wondering if there are particular Australian poets, either um, contemporaries or people from the past, who you sort of look to as guiding lights for your work.
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. And it's funny because I was actually thinking about that before the interview. Um, Would I actually name contemporary, you know, writing poets? It's a bit hard when you're talking about people who are writing now because, you know, some of them are people that I know. Um, So I'm kind of sensitive about mentioning certain people and not mentioning others. But actually in terms of like um, what I would consider guiding lights, oh, also, I have a kind of brain. I, I don't have a very good brain for sort of scooping
0: back and surveying and being able to sort of get hold of. No, neither do I. Neither do I. I, <laughs> I just, yeah. my
1: partner does, but, I, so, you know, she'll say things to me. I'm like, you know, my brain doesn't work like that. I just can't remember that kind of thing. Um, so, like, at the moment, all I can think of is Dorothy Porter, that she's, so much, she's an Australian poet whose work I really, um, really, <laughs> really enjoyed a lot of. And, um, oh, I did a writing course with her too, like just a little diplomary thing, a continuing education thing through UTS years and years ago. And that was really interesting, um, mainly because, well, one of the things I remember was that she, she someone asked her, you know, what's your basic advice for people who write or want to write? And she said, read, read, read and write, write, write. And I thought, yep, that pretty much you know, that, that pretty much sums it up. I would give someone exactly the same advice. Just you need to be reading and you need to be writing, not just thinking about writing. Anyway, yeah. back to your question. Is And also I don't have my poetry books in the, the room that, I, that I'm in is my writing room, but my poetry books are actually out in the lounge room. Otherwise I would turn around and actually just, you know, scan. If I think of anyone later, I'll say it's quite possible people will start popping into my mind as we're talking about other things.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that always happens to me too. I always think of um, examples much later. But I love that advice from Porter. And I think, yeah, if she were around, I would be hounding her for an interview. But it's great because um, I spoke to Lisa Brockwell a few weeks ago and she mentioned um, learning from Dorothy as well. So, kind of through um, people who learnt from Dorothy Porter, I'm kind of hearing parts of her story, which is lovely.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess, too, a lot of the poets who I think have really influenced me are not actually Australian poets. Like, if I just thought, if I think generally about um, poets, in fact, you know, when when the possibility of this uh, interview came up and I was thinking, oh, my God, what poem am I going to, like, pick for my poem of someone else's? And the two people who popped into my head then were um, Margaret Atwood and Sylvia Plath. And they're both people whose poetry's been really important to me. I don't know that um, that many people are as aware of Margaret Atwood's poetry because she's so famous as a, as a novelist. But I really like her poetry, particularly um, from two books of hers, um, Power Politics and You Are Happy. I noticed when I was sort of looking through, um, you know, to decide what poem I was going to use in they're the two collections where most of my favourites of hers are. So, you know, I think of, and, you know, Plath is brilliant, um, and I, and also I, I really like, if, if I had been, if say I had decided to choose a Plath poem, the one I think I would have picked would have been Among the narcissi, which is a sort of, um, quiet little poem, but really good. But it's sort of the Plath that, um, isn't. A lot of people think of, you know, Lady Lazarus and uh, the stuff that's very sort of, um, almost sort of violent, very out there, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but I also like her very precise, contained... They're still very intense, but sort of quieter um, poems. Thomas Transtromer, I really like his stuff. Raymond Carver, I really like some of his poetry. So it's sort of, where, you know, if I'm just thinking in a... Gen- oh, Anne Carson, I really, really like some of her stuff. Oh, and Anne Michaels, a Canadian poet... I also really like um, a lot of hers. So, so yeah, I must, uh, I must admit when I think of sort of poets who I feel kind of influenced by, a lot of them are from overseas.
0: Yeah, you've got three Canadians on that list and a couple of Brits, I think. Um, I was listening to a British poet called Sarah Howe talk a little while ago and she was saying that while she was trained in this kind of very rich classical British tradition, she never really felt connected to that poetry. And it was only when she discovered American poets from the sixties onwards, I think, that she thought, Oh, we're allowed to do it this way. This actually this speaks to me. And I admit that I have definitely had a similar experience too. Not that Australian poets haven't inspired me, they definitely have, but there's something about the energy and um I don't know, maybe it's an honesty that comes out of the US sometimes that really, yeah, just connects for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes, and yes, I think I do connect to that too. And I also connect to, I think, some of the British people, like uh, someone else who just popped into my head is uh, Vicky Fever.
0: Have you ever come across her? I haven't. I'm writing it down, Vicky Fever.
1: Fever spelled F-E-A-V-E-R. Cool. She She writes... Again, sort of very intense, quite precise, a lot of stuff about women in there. I actually went to, oh, God, this is back in 1998, I went to the Adelaide, what's it called, book something, like the book fair type of deal in Adelaide, and um, <clears throat> I picked up a book by Vicky Fever and opened it and just read the poem I came to, and at the end of the poem, I burst into tears. Oh, wow. In the middle of the book tent. I was like, oh, my God, so I bought it, and I thought, you know, as you do, I'll get it signed. And um, so she writes this quite uh, gutsy, visceral poetry and she looks like a vicar's wife. I swear to God, like, it's stereotypical. And she also looked, when I saw her, she looked really, I mean, she had just probably flown for 30 hours. She looked really kind of dazed. And I was probably really hot, you know, Adelaide in February or whenever it is. Um but yeah, she's someone whose whose poetry I also. It's like I feel like um, there are poets out there, and their poetry sometimes feels like, uh, like almost like their poetry and my poetry are relatives. There's sort of some uh, some something in common, and it doesn't mean that's not the only kind of poetry I like. I like some poetry that has abs that's completely different from mine, um, but I also like that feeling sometimes when you sort of read someone's poetry and you think, yeah, there's something. It's almost like there's a common Something. It's a bit hard to define.
0: I like that, though. relatives. That, that definitely <clears> makes sense to me. Shall we look at this Maggie Nelson poem now?
1: Sure, yeah.
0: This is from a book called Something Bright Then Holes, which has got to be one of the great titles. And apparently I was reading it's the description of a hand by someone who had just regained their sight.
1: Yes. So yes, that's, that's right. Yeah, and the first, um, the first poem in the book is actually called Something Bright Then Holes, and it, that's that sort of reference in there. This, I have to say this book, the reason I actually came across this book is that my po- partner, who's originally from the States, brought it back from me after a trip over there and it was like one of here's here's something that I bought you and I kind of looked at it and my heart sank because I thought, what are the odds that even someone who knows me as well as my partner does can pick a poetry book that I'm going to enjoy because let me tell you I am very, very fussy. Anyway, I discovered I loved this book. I really like it. It's one of my favourite, you know, of any of the poetry books I have. And yeah, and probably my favourite bit of the book is that sequence called Canal Diaries, which is what popped into my head. That was what I, even when you, I think when I realised that I was going to have to pick a poem, that was what came into my head first and I sort of pushed it away because I thought, what's well, a sequence, you can't sort of, but I thought, yeah, just pick one from that. So, yeah, the one I chose is the one called, called Green. Screams from an Italian family up the street, that stupid kid hitting rock after rock with his metal bat. I'd be a shitty boyfriend, you said, as if making a promise. I said... It's not the content I'm in love with, it's the form. And that was tenderness. All last year, I planned to write a book about the colour blue. Now I'm suddenly surrounded by green. Green gagging me pleasurably. Green holding onto my hips from behind. Digging into the cleft. The cleft that can be made. You have no idea what kind of light you'll let in when you drop the bowl. No idea. No idea. What will make you
0: feel yeah the first thing that came to mind after I finished that just from those those last two lines is um of course Leonard Cohen there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in
1: oh yeah um
0: but what is it particularly that appeals to you about this one
1: what is it about this particular one I think it is partly the ending You know you have no idea what kind of like I I partly liked, I partly responded to that I think on a on a personal level because I tend to I tend to the control freak side of things and you know I work as an editor where that's actually an advantage but you know in other places in life it's not so much of an an advantage so I liked what it was saying Uh, you know that it's about dropping the bowl you're not preserving the bowl you're not keeping the bowl intact you're not making sure it's perfect You drop it and then you find out um, what kind of light comes in and and also what will make you full, which kind of doesn't make sense on a really literal level. But in terms of the poem, I think also because she's talking about she had this plan, she was going to write this book about the colour blue, which she did end up writing. It's called Bluets. Anyway, so she had the plan, but actually the, the green took over. I don't really know what the green is, and I actually am not very analytical about poetry. I don't generally sort of sit down and... Um, you know, think about uh, what's in there and how they work together and um, why it sort of works for me. I tend to sort of respond more intuitively and emotionally, I think, to poetry. I guess a bit intellectually, but, um, but I like the fact she's wanting to write a book about the colour blue, but actually it's green. Green's everywhere. She didn't ask for the green, but there it is, and it's giving her something she likes. So I think part of the reason I respond to this particularly is this sort of idea of you don't actually have to control life. You can actually um, let go of that and you might get something that you completely weren't expecting but that is making you fall.
0: Yeah, it's such a comforting idea. Um, There was a review of her book, The Argonauts in The Guardian, that I was reading, Yeah, Um, which I haven't read, but the reviewer said that one of the good things about this book is that Nelson does this kind of thinking that's capable of ambiguity and that's definitely there in this poem, absolutely. There's the bowl breaking but somehow able Mm -hmm. to make you full. Um, There's this kind of conversation, this promise of I'd be a shitty boyfriend and then she's still kind of into this guy for whatever reason.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole theme of Canal Diaries basically.
0: Yeah, right. There was a line, I don't know if it's from Nelson or from the reviewer, I think it might be from Nelson, and it's just, it is all equally gorgeous, which I thought oh, was, yeah. kind of sums it up.
1: I think you're right because there's in in the sequence she's, she, she's living, it seems like, it's funny talking about this too because I actually, I recently had um, a poem accepted for Cordite, the one that Kerry Glastonbury's doing, the one called Confession. Oh, beautiful. And... Mm, And this, um, the poem that she accepted was one that I wrote when I was getting over the flu and I was reading canal diaries. So this, my poem starts off something like I'm reading Maggie Nelson in some indeterminate post fever stage of the flu. And so it's sort of about my, um, not in a sort of literary criticism sense, but it's sort of my, in terms of my life, my responses to this poem. And it's sort of a, it and i actually quote a bit of green i didn't realize this till after i'd chosen it for the one for today um in my poem i quote it's not the content i'm in love with it's it's the form uh and anyway why was i saying that oh i know because in the poem that i wrote i'm saying that my reading of canal diaries is basically that she's gone to live with this shitty boyfriend um by the canal which i think is true she i think they did live it's called the Oh, you're in New York. Is it called the Gowanus Canal or is there an area yeah, called Gowanus? Yeah, I
0: think there is a Gowanus Canal. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm still struggling to make it yeah. down the street most days. Oh.
1: <laughs> well, I think, it's I think it's somewhere like in Brooklyn. And they, and so in this sequence, she's observing the canal. A lot of it is her taking a notebook and going to the canal and sort of, um, what's the word, documenting what's, um, what's happening at the canal, but, of course, not in a dry kind of purely intellectual way it's all connecting with her life and what's going on with the the shitty boyfriend who i think might be a junkie that's sort of my my impression from various uh, things in the sequence anyway sorry i completely forgot what you asked
0: me no that's all super interesting that i think my favorite line in this though is um that stupid kid hitting rock after rock with his metal bat <laughs> because that is exactly like when you having these conversations with people, these kind of like really intense. You know, um, it's not so much an argument as it is like a negotiation. You kind of locked horns. There's always some irritating noise. Have you mm. noticed
1: that? Mm. <laughs> Just like some irritating something going on. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like
0: pulling you back into the world and saying, "This is not that important." Hello. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. No, it's a great poem. And I think it. I think you're right. I think responding to it on an intuitive level is the way to go. I think to do a close reading, it might kind of crumble.
1: It might. Yeah. It, it, it might, but as a whole, I think it works.
0: Yeah. That's cool. I like that this links with what we're going to see in Cordite. It's very cool.
1: Yeah, that's it's kind of fun that that's,
0: um, there's that connection. Yeah. So... Ooh. This kind, so we've talked a little bit about the kinds of poetry that connect with you and the relative poems. Are there poems, the types of poetry that you don't like or trends in your own work that you recognise and try to cut out and avoid?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, the kind of poetry I don't like personally, although I'm not trying to stop anyone else enjoying it. Is poetry that is obscure kind of for obscurity? It seems for obscurity's sake, or else for whatever reason, it just has ended up really obscure. If I can't understand a poem at any level—sort of intellectual, emotional, spiritual—then it doesn't. It does. It's no good to me. It's like I want to be affected by a poem. I want it to do something to me emotionally, to provoke, you know, my thinking. To open something, you know, spiritually. I want poetry to, to have an effect. So poetry that's really obscure, or poetry that feels really more like um word games, really just has no effect on me and I'm I'm just not interested. Uh and and I have to say it also annoys me, <laughs> which is, you know, I know different strokes for different folks, but yeah, that's that's basically the kind of po- so so a lot of experimental poetry just leaves me cold. Um, some doesn't because some there is actually uh, a way to connect and I can feel that even though it's doing something quite unusual, it's there's a meaning getting through to me. Uh, so then I can kind of enjoy it. But I find a lot of it really doesn't do that and I find um, a lot of it is very, just feels like people being clever and, I mean, to me that's really boring and it doesn't affect me and I guess that's, you know, when it comes down to it. In terms of my own uh, work, the thing that I often used to find myself fighting against and the thing that I used to have people alerting me to was a a, a tendency towards neatness, a tendency towards wrapping things up and having things sort of come out neatly. Um, you know, that's... I, I just remember there's sort of two people who would often say, you know, the end, it's a bit neat. I'd be like, oh... Because the thing is, I like a beautifully resolved poem. I love poems that have a, you know, knock your head off last line. That's one of the great pleasures of life for me. And I think last lines are really important. And I know that personally when I'm writing something, there's a certain level of stress. There's a certain level of almost subterranean in the background agitation until the last line is there and sometimes that changes but quite often once I have the last line oh I kind of relax and then I can just go hell for leather you know working on on the rest of it Um, but I think the the sort of maybe the downside and I don't notice it as much now maybe it's something that's sort of actually changed for me Uh, I think the downside used to be this sort of you know wanting for wanting of completion and uh, that, that could turn up as neatness. And then I'd just have to chop it off, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's and, – and actually it kind of what, – what I'm saying kind of relates to the poem that's been picked up by Cordite feels like it's in a, a different style. I mean, I don't consciously ever think about style. I've had people say to, things to me like, oh, you've got such a strong voice. I'm like, really? Because when I'm writing a poem, really I'm I'm really – focused on the poem. I never think about audience. I'm just listening to the poem. What does the poem need? What's wrong with this? It feels like, oh, there's something missing here, or um, it's, oh, no, it doesn't need to be that shape, or, oh, let's try it in this number of, and then things come in, things go out, you're chopping things. But I'm listening to the poem. So for each one, it's really my only focus. My sole focus is, well, no, maybe I have two focuses. It's, it's what the poem needs, and there's also, I guess, a focus on if I'm actually – because I do a lot of writing. I use my life as material quite a lot. So there's also this am I actually conveying the truth of what I experienced or what I experienced is true in the poem. So that's sort of part of it as well. Um, anyway, sorry, so the poem that uh, that uh, has been picked up by Cordite, which is called Flame, a love poem, feels a bit different. It feels more – uh, a lot of my poems end up very uh, precise I like clarity a lot of them I think are very clear um, and this one actually not that it's unclear but it just feels a bit more expansive a bit more discursive it's a bit messier even though like once it had been accepted I went back and read it just thinking oh my god is there something that I think needs to be changed and I didn't really I didn't find anything that I felt needed to be changed at the same time there is a different um, A different feeling and a a different energy it doesn't feel quite so like a lot of the poems I've been writing lately are in this um are in a sequence of poems I'm writing that is basically fundamentally kind of autobiographical but seen through the lens of the chemical elements and these poems are mostly very very they're kind of intense and precise I would say so, yeah, this other poem felt like a kind of a, a loosening. It felt nice to be able to, um, yeah, so I kind of hesitate to call it a style because I don't tend to think in terms of style. But it does have a very different feel to a lot of the stuff that I write. And I have written other things that feel more like it uh, since I wrote that one.
0: Yeah, I, I think I would be surprised if um, there weren't many more poets who are exactly like you in that they don't think of themselves well, first of all, they don't put that adjective in front of the word poet when they describe themselves, and they probably don't think in terms of style. Um, mm. Like you say, they're just, they're just listening to what the poem wants to do. But, yeah, I love that. I can't wait to read it. What a great title. Phlegm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it was the sickness that was allowing you to kind of loosen, let, let loose the reins a little bit.
1: That's possible, and I I actually hadn't thought of that, but you might be
0: right. I was still
1: sick when I wrote the first draft of that poem.
0: I love it. I love it. But uh, the poem that um, that you are going to read for us is from that sequence that you were talking about, and this is very exciting. So this is kind of a sequence in progress, isn't it? It's not actually published or out there. No,
1: Bits of it this, this poem I'm going to read is actually going to be in the Canberra Times. I just only found out a, a couple of weeks. I've only just started sending the individual poems out. so that was very exciting. Woo that, to have an acceptance for, for one of those. That but is no the so whole. Cool. Thing, the whole thing is not out there and it's and at the moment it's a sort of a fulminating mixture of there are poems in there that I would say are finished definitely there are poems in there that I know I'm going to want to probably revise more. There are notes towards poems. So it's a, bit, it's, a, it's a mix at
0: the moment. I love it. And you haven't quite settled on a, a final form, it sounds like. It might be just a sequence or it might be a book or...?
1: Well, at the moment it's a sequence in... I'm working on a manuscript. I'm working on the manuscript for my third collection. And at the moment it's a sequence within that. And I think that's quite likely to, to end up there. Um, in terms of form, though, there are things like what, what order do the poems go in? This this fascinates me. I mean, I love working... I love this sort of level of working with poetry because I've tried it a few... Di- I've tried it some different ways. I've tried it... Because a lot of it is a of biographical, I've tried it chronologically. Um, because it's um, based on the chemical elements, I've tried it in the order of the elements. That's how it is actually at the moment. But I don't really know how it's, how it's going to end up. And each time a new poem comes into it, that sort of changes if, you know, if you try the different orders, it kind of changes... Um, its effect, I guess, as you're reading it, it sort of does different things in different orders. So, yeah, so it isn't, it certainly isn't fixed in stone by any
0: means. Oh, this is very exciting. Well, preview of the Canberra Times. I'm ahead of you, Canberra <laughs> Times. <laughs> sneak sneak preview. Sneak preview. Let's let's hear this one. Okay, so this is
1: this is called hydrogen. Most of Earth's hydrogen is not free in the atmosphere, diatomic, but tethered to oxygen in water, the human body's solvent. Conceived in oozing warmth, we grow in a sealed off sea. Once born, we require regular watering. In the name of homeostasis, our bodies regularly ring us out. Besieged by infant need, surprised by sorrow, laughter, eros. We
0: brim, we drip. Love this one. It's the messiness of humans. I think you've got in there. And I wanted to ask you about that um, second to last line, Surprised by Sorrow. Is that in any way a connection to Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis' book?
1: (laughs) No, I had never thought of that, to be honest. I was purely thinking of, what are the things that make us lick? What are the things that, you know, make us cry or um, snot or, um, you know, sexual fluids, the whole bit? What, what are the actual, what are the circumstances and what are the emotions? So, no, I hadn't even thought of surprise by joy.
0: Oh, that's good. I'm making little connections here. And, yeah, I, I also wanted to ask you about the, the word diatomic I don't. I didn't look that up. But what does that? Refer oh, to? it just
1: means that certain things, um, certain elements. Okay, so hydrogen on its own is a gas, and they're all different gases. And some of them are. Uh, some of them come diatomic. Just means two atoms go together. So you have H two. When you see hydrogen, you'll never. When you have an element they all have their little um abbreviations so carbon is c and fluorine is f and some of them have sneaky ones like silver is ag for from argentum the latin blah blah um so you might actually have like a single silver atom or iron and you'll see like ag plus or whatever um but hydrogen is always in pairs so you see h2 or o2 like so yeah, oxygen is always paired as well. So it's just diatomic. Just means in its in its natural form on Earth, it's going around as a as as a molecule, basically, but two atoms together, um, linked by. I can't even remember what the bonds call now, but so that's what diatomic means.
0: That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Like it's a beautiful extra layer to the poem. At the same time, when you're describing this to me, like. I am literally back at Alfred Deakin High School, 14 years old, <laughs> freaking out because I can't do science.
1: <laughs> oh, 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 because, you know, what it reminds me of is being um, probably oh, probably 13 years old, the first class that I had that was that was chemistry and we were doing atomic structure. My mind was being blown. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I, I love chemistry for me. And let me just say here, I'm not like, I don't love all science. I hate physics, but I love chemistry. And chemistry for me, it's the science of, it's about stuff. It's about substances. It's about how um, substances are, like what are their qualities? What do they do in certain situations? How do they react together? How do we perceive them? What do they taste like? What do they smell like? Do they kill you? Um, you know, it, uh, for some reason, I'm just totally fascinated by um, by what chemistry. Can I just say what chemistry for me is about? Because what I discovered was I went off to uni and I, did, um, I started a degree which was uh, pure and applied chemistry. And probably in around second year, I started realising that the, the further along you went, the more chemistry became like physics, <laughs> which didn't interest me at all. So you get into all this... Um, Oh, orbital theory and blah blah. And I'm really, I was really interested in just the stuff, and I liked doing, you know, the experiments in the lab. And there's there's a um, there's a poem in this sequence called, it's actually called Lead, but it's about, it's it feels like um, for me the culmination of a long-held dream, which was that when I was in the the inorganic chemistry lab, we did uh, precipitates, which is this amazing thing where you have like two clear solutions. So they just look like water and you tip one of them into the other and then bam, there's this stuff in there that's often highly coloured when nothing was before. You put these two clear things together and an insoluble solid just appears and it can look like clouds. It can look like tiny little rain that just goes voop, down to the bottom of the test tube. It's really fascinating. And I remember being in that lab and having that uh, almost a thought slash feeling I want to write about this this has got to be and and that is in one of the poems in this sequence the one called lead and it's connected to something else in the poem but anyway so yeah i see that we had completely different reactions to chemistry and i think my passion for chemistry is the reason that these poems have sort of come out in this particular form and why they're all you know linked linked to
0: elements so beautiful it's yeah I don't know I think you just had better science classes than I did um. I
1: did have a very good teacher one of my two really good teachers in in high school was the teacher for that chemistry class
0: oh right yeah and that's that's what makes a difference isn't it but the thing that I like about this poem and I'm I'm trying to kind of draw a line between this and the eco-poetic standpoint because I know that you've been on the editorial board of Plumwood Mountain um, yeah I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with this um, poet from the US called Brenda Hillman. She's kind of an activist, eco-poet person. And she gave me the best working definition of eco-poetry, which is poetry where the human is not at the centre. Oh! Yeah, and the interesting thing to me about Hydrogen and about um, a number of your other poems is that there's a very strong human presence but it's not necessarily an elevated one. And, um, yeah, maybe the the chemistry background kind of helps with that. I don't know, that sort of perspective of, like, well, we're all just a mess of goo, really.
1: Um. (laughs) Well, look, when you said that, because I thought, when you said the thing about eco-poetry, I don't think that's my definition of eco-poetry because, for me, the the human has to be in there. Um, it's I have a huge just interest in autobiography in kind of all different forms and a lot of the editorial work I do like if we go into my day job is I work a lot on biography and autobiography and because I'm kind of fascinated by people's experience of life especially like their real real, true, down home, what really happened? What did you really think? What did you really do? Even if it's really ill-advised and stupid and caused catastrophe, I'm really interested to know how people actually really experience life. So um, because I think that's such a fundamental interest for me, I think for me, but when you say not elevated, that makes sense to me too because I, even when I was back at school, it used to really piss me off. That people thought humans weren't animals. It's like, get a grip. Mm. People mm. are animals. Yes, we have particular things that we can do that other animals can't. And guess what? Other animals have particular things they can do that we can't. It doesn't make us better than them. So I think I've had that feeling, you know, that or that belief going back a long way. So um, I, I I do feel like humans are humans are. Oh yes, and look, the chemistry standpoint that actually does come into it. There's a poem in my um, first book called Everything We're Made Of and it's everything we're made of comes from Earth and it's basically detailing where where did this, um, you know, that calcium atom in your skull star fight. It was made in a supernova. That's where all the calcium comes from. So the fact that we're actually um, made up of I mean, it could hardly to be otherwise, I guess. We're made up of the stuff of the universe. And closer to home, we're made of Earth. Everything that we are made of has actually come from the Earth. So I guess I do feel like humans are part of the overall thing. And a lot of trouble comes from humans thinking, well, we're the boss of everything. Oh, really? You're like, who died and made you boss? We're not the boss. And I think that kind of thinking really um, is what fucks up the Earth. I think when people see we are just part of the we're just part of everything that's actually really wonderful and it means you have to work with everything to sort of keep everything healthy including yourselves
0: yeah couldn't agree more <laughs> gonna have to send that to uh, myron Ebel and uh let him know <laughs> Who's- oh don't get me started it's trump's okay. head of the epa it's just it's just a nightmare anyway um I think what you're getting at, though, is I've been trying to articulate in in reading some of your poems, what is it that makes them Australian? And I hope that's not kind of an irritating way to look at them, but I felt very, very homesick reading a couple of your poems. Um, Mapping the Cactus was one.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is just fantastic and a really deeply beautiful and it seems like quite personal poem called The Quiet House. Oh, yeah, yeah, and so I, I'm wondering if, because I've been trying to articulate, there's nothing in those poems that is particularly Australian. There's no gum trees, there's no galahs, cockatoos, kangaroos, there's nothing, but there, there's something about them and maybe it's my own projection that makes, them, makes me feel like I want to go home, you know. Yes,
1: um, curious, especially with The Quiet House, I'm curious about, well, both of them, I guess. But, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about what – and I guess, look, when I think about The Quiet House, for some reason the poem in that that springs to my mind is one where I'm sitting in a chair having a cup of tea, having a quiet cup of tea and actually wishing that I was being interrupted by a crying baby who, you know, isn't there because my uh, sister's daughter was stillborn. Um, but in, in that poem, for me, there's a lot of perceiving the, which, you know, I'm not saying it's in the poem for a reader, but for me, it's it's sort of the the atmosphere and the weather and the feeling of the air and sort of thinking about the, the backyard, like what, what their sort of little backyard looked like. And I don't know. I, anyway, so I guess that doesn't really explain why it makes you homesick well maybe it's. But I, curious about
0: it. yeah i i could also be that um it could also be that there's this sense of what you were talking about with the biographical writing of the actual not the smooth and rounded story but the real story so there's a moment that you write about i think it may be at the actual funeral where um the people you're with are trying to come up with better ways to swear yes
1: yes
0: (laughs) and that seemed quite Aussie to me you know I've the funerals that I've been to there's often a lot of joking um because we we find it tough to really just sit in that deep kind of really earnest sadness for too long so Uh,
1: yeah and I think it's a way of I do think it's also a way of not so much um getting away from the sadness or masking the sadness necessarily but another way of um what's the word? Benting's not the right word. It's it's sort of another way a lot of feeling gets out, I think. And yet it's very vivid to me that picture. Um as my brother-in-law got really, really drunk. We were all basically getting drunk on champagne. And then this, you know, this conversation about about the swearing. And yeah, we were we were cracking up. And also I do think there's an Australian thing about in intense situations the humour tends to come out. Because I've actually had it um, cause problems occasionally between me and my partner because she's originally from the States, although she actually grew up a lot in Europe. But um, in in a sort of very serious situation, I will joke, uh, there's that sort of, um, I don't know, sometimes it's black humour or... But I don't know what it is, but it does. I think it is a bit of a British thing as well, but it's definitely an Australian thing. And sometimes she will think, I'm not taking the situation seriously. I am. I absolutely am. And I'm doing everything I can to, you know, whatever is needed to sort of remedy whatever the, the difficult thing is. But at the same time, why not have a laugh? And sometimes it just really is funny or it's so bad it's funny. So maybe that. Whereas I think in in American culture there is there is actually a lot more seriousness in certain situations. There there's a lot more respect for certain people in certain positions, and there's a lot more sort of when you're taking something seriously, you don't you don't um, you don't joke about it. Yeah. So I guess that is a bit Australian.
0: Yeah, maybe that's part of it too. Um, I had a similar experience the other night. I went to a poetry reading and someone started feeling really sick and they had to call an ambulance and it was not pretty and myself and another Aussie I was with and an American girl, we all went and stood outside and I kind of had this moment of realising that if it was just me and the other Aussie girl, we would be cracking jokes, even though we were like, I hope he's going to be okay. But because we were with this American girl, we just stood silently because we didn't know what to do. (laughs) We didn't know what to do.
1: yeah, and the joking is a great relief of tension. I think that's part of the whole, the whole deal. It can, it can. I think it can kind of free you up to, to get the whole emotional impact of a situation in a way that that might be, also partly what it does.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I I think that that poem, the quiet house, is is just it just floored me. And yeah, thank you for writing it. It's amazing.
1: Thank you. I have to say it is one of the most difficult things I've written.
0: I can imagine. So you're working on the biographical sequence um, with the elements and you're working towards this manuscript. Is it, um, is it still very much like bubbling away in a like a formative sort of figuring out where it's going to go or is it nearing completion or...?
1: Oh, it's it's definitely more towards nearing completion it's well and then I feel like I'm going to jinx it (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: maybe I shouldn't have asked that
1: no no you're allowed to ask that it's it's in a it's I think I was actually doing a grant application or something when I started putting it together and I realized that it was actually coming together and it was actually a thing so it is That was the point I realised, oh, yes, this is a manuscript. And there is actually quite a lot in it that's um, already out and been published or is finished and that I'll, you know, be sending out. Um, And there are also some kind of not exactly gaps but, um, for example, I've got one sequence where I – which I started quite a long time ago. I mean, things can take a long time to actually come to completion for me – and, but I know that I need to read this certain book to actually get back into the whole. So, so yeah. So there's sort of parts that are comp- that that are really just sort of either formative or um, some bits a are bit finished and some bits aren't. Uh, but yeah, it's it's actually to the stage where I'm starting to think about it is going to be finished in the next, you know, like I would think definitely within a matter of months rather than years. So so it's sort of getting there. But again, I just don't want to cheat myself. <laughs> yeah but you know I'm starting to think about where would I actually send this out to so yeah it's finished enough that I'm sort of thinking that and also thinking I need to sort of I hadn't sent anything out for ages until a couple of months ago and I thought yeah you know I I need to get back into sort of sending things out again
0: that's very cool all right well I'm not holding my breath there's no pressure But I can't wait to see this book, so hurry up.
1: (laughs) But that's really nice. It's really nice to think there's at least one person out in the world who's actually looking forward to this book. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see it. That's fun.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, And I thought of something else too. I I have a couple of people who listen to this who are very much kind of nascent, fragile beginning poets. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if if you could give them some, some words of... You've given me so much encouragement with your dental approach to creativity, but I'm wondering if you were going to talk to them, what would you say? Nascent poets.
1: Um, I guess I would say... Um, well, look, I think one thing that helped me was that I never questioned whether I was a writer. I wrote my first poem when I was seven, and and I don't think I thought too much about it then, but um, from, from a pretty young age, I just kind of knew that I was a writer. And I know, and I know people who've had great struggles around that, great, am I allowed to say I'm a writer? I think if you're writing, you're a writer. Doesn't mean you're a good writer, but, you know, you're a writer. So I would say, um, well, I don't know what I can say actually to help about that because that was something I didn't really have trouble with. But I guess that's something that I do try and encourage. If I run into people who are sort of having this whole, am I a pretender, do I have the right to oh, my God, I tell you what, working in publishing, you see so much crap that actually gets published. Um, It's like don't worry about whether you can call yourself a writer because people who really aren't writers are getting published. (laughs) Don't even think about it. I don't know if that's really helpful. but
0: No, it is. It is, absolutely. And and that's why it's good to read stuff that you hate sometimes just to remind yourself that, hey, this person's out there. Why shouldn't you be? (laughs) Why
1: shouldn't you be? And I would say... um, Something that was really useful to me was that um, I joined a writer's group. I say that though having – I belonged to three writer's groups and really only one of them was fabulous and one of them was terrible and one of them was sort of okay but I didn't really get a lot out of it. So, But one of them was actually fabulous. If you can find a group of people – and the group that I was in, I was writing mainly poetry at the time but it was a mixed group. It was poets, short story writers, novelists, the whole thing – if you can find a group of people where you feel like um, well first of all that you can get decent feedback because and that that would be actually the second thing I would say generally is find find some people who who you trust their feedback and not people who are just gonna go who don't know anything about it and go oh it's lovely oh it's nice I like the bit about you need people who are actually going to be uh, incisive and truthful and gentle so you kind of need that combination of um, forthrightness but sensitivity. You need people who are not going to, because it can actually. Um, when I was in that Dorothy Porter class, we there was one point where we brought our poems in and read them to the class. My, the class did not know what to make of the poem I read. There was this devastating silence. And I didn't write for three years, oh, so you kind of want to avoid that kind of experience. You want to, I mean, Dorothy actually said some nice things about it, but it was it was—it was an awful experience. So, you want to get people who are going to, who have a sense will connect with your work in some way. The group I was in, generally, you know, if you just really didn't connect with something that someone read, you wouldn't say anything, and the people who did connect with it would say things. And um, that, that that worked really well. And the fact that I trusted these people wanted the best for me and for my work. No one was trying to one-up anyone. No one was trying to look clever. No one was trying to look like they were the expert and other people didn't know what they were doing. It was very, very even, very welcoming. And people didn't always agree and there was conflict in that group. And often you'd read something and someone would say, oh, well, look, this, this line here, I really didn't get it and I think it's sort of taking away from it. And someone else would say, that was my favourite line. So it also kind of trains you in that you are the final arbiter and you're going to get different, you know, different opinions about your work and in the end it is down to you. But, but having people who can kind of, who can encourage you but also give you um, astute but sensitive feedback, that's I think that's really useful, particularly when you're starting out. And a little bit of um, someone appreciating something you've written can go a long way. If, if you, you know, if there's just even one person in a group or one person, you know, who gets what you're trying to do, even if it's sort of imperfect, or says, wow, you know, when I read that bit, I felt such and such, um, it's, it's, it's so encouraging and that can be really, really... I actually think that's useful right the way along, but particularly when you're starting out. So, yeah, and also just to... Um, ..just to actually... Kind of dare to write, like not in a like I'm not thinking in a grindstone. You must sit down every day, but um, just because it's very easy. Well, look, and actually now I say this, I think well that's a heap of crap. (laughs) (laughs) I went through a stage when I was in my twenties. I really wanted to write. You know, I I thought of myself as a writer for so long. I want when I was eleven, I wanted to publish my first novel by the time I was sixteen. So I was I kind of was thinking that way for a long time. But I wasn't writing, and I was so frustrated by this. And I was sort of so down on myself. Oh, yeah, you say you want to write, and then you just don't write. Like, yeah, great, good one. And then actually, what happened for me was that my first relationship broke up, and I was completely devastated. I thought I was going to die of grief. And I went into counseling. So this was my first experience of therapy and I discovered what sort of became really clear to me was how emotionally shut down I was most of the time. And I'd also by this age registered that I tended to write when I was feeling something strongly about something. So that was really a watershed thing for me. Um, So... So I'm kind of feeling – the reason I felt like I was crap was I'm saying, oh, you know, just write anyway. But for me, it took actually realising that I was emotionally shut down and actually doing something about that and and doing therapy so that just in my own life I was more – I think that was really an important part for me being able to write, you know, what I wanted to write and as much as – actually sort of being freed into my life as a writer.
0: Yeah, there's kind of two – there's two things at work, I think. There's the permission not to write and then there's the recognition that you're not writing for a reason that is like a solvable problem. Um, yeah, I think there, you have to sort of hold both. Um, you can't sit down and force yourself every day, although that's sometimes what I try to do. And, yeah, you can't necessarily always be waiting for inspiration to strike, to strike. So... It's a balance. What a boring answer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, too, once you actually have written some stuff and you've got stuff there so that you can always... I was thinking, you know, pop into it when you're on the computer or I I tend to carry, you know, I usually have a few poems with me and it'll often be my most recent finished poems, which I reread obsessively for a period of time, um, with great pleasure, I have to say. Uh, And also something in progress so that if I have, you know, a bit of time I can kind of drag something out or if I have an idea about it, it's with me. And also, you know, so you've got the blank paper if some new thing kind of strikes. I think, um, I don't know, for, for me, something, the, the physicality of actually having having it with me um, so that if I'm standing in a supermarket queue I can think, oh, and I can just read a poem that I've written recently that I'm in that sort of obsessive rereading stage with, or I can pull out something and think, yeah, what was that bit that I was – I really love – one of my favourite bits of writing really is when you've got um, a draft of something and you've gone through it and you've got all – this is what I do anyway – all your pencil annotations all over. You've had all these ideas, you read it, you've you've crossed things out, you've put things in, you've written what about the – and so it has all this um, – it's, it's almost like it has potential work there. And then – I, there's something I really love about that, and the fact that you can get that out and you can look at what you uh, have highlighted for yourself and you can dive back into that poem. There's something, oh, there's something that I love about that.
0: Yeah, me too. I love looking at a page that's covered in scribbles.
1: It yeah. Means, it means yeah. you've done something. <laughs> well, I don't think of it as, a, I think of it as, uh, it's sort of like there's a great potential in it for me. There's a lovely feeling of potential. Yeah. Like,
0: I can explain it very well but um it's like it could no. go in any direction from that point really like you've kind of opened well, it up there's a sort
1: of energy I was just actually thinking in oh, this is probably actually physics in physics there's a thing called potential energy and if you for example um take a something heavy I'm thinking of was like a ball or a steel ball or something and you, and you lift it up that ball then has a lot of what's called potential energy because if you let go of it, bam, it's going to go down. It's like there's this, which is, it's all to do with gravity and, and anyway, I'm terrible at physics, but it's this whole motion and then there's kinetic energies when it's, when it's actually moving. I think for me, a poem, a printed out poem with all this pencil annotation all over it is, is feels like potential energy that then gets sort of released when you actually go back into that poem and and it's like the first you don't have to think about what am I going to do with this poem because you've made all these marks you've had all these ideas there are things you already want to do so it's a sort of a way of it's almost like even by engaging with it again you release the potential energy and it becomes you know the sort of kinetic energy of writing this is great
0: this is a great science lesson (laughs)